Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. Today we are going to be hearing from Lori Denning, the author of Real Heroes of the Old Testament. Lori is going to be sharing the book of Judges with us and caution you several times that this is a book that is filled with violence and maybe you want to read yourself before including any children in your study this week. The book of Judges is a difficult book. I agree with Lori. The last verse in the book tells us that during this period of time, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They've gone a long time without a prophet and without a king or a leader to guide them in their worship and in their way of life. And it shows. And so we have people who are called to be deliverers or judges to the people who are very far from perfect. What is the Lord trying to teach us by including stories of people who have pretty colossal failures in their lives? What is it the Lord wants us to understand and learn by having these stories included in the scriptures? During the reign of the judges, most of the people fell into the habit of worshiping the gods of their neighbors and became apostate. We want to remind you that by being a podcast listener or viewer, you are entitled to 20% off at cedarfort.com on anything that you might enjoy finding on the website. Just use the code podcast20 at checkout. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe and like and leave any comments. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are headed into the book of Judges. And after today, you will say, this is the cautionary tale in the Old Testament. Let's jump in. The book of Judges is one of those books that we are going to have to go pretty quickly through. So in the Come Follow Me study, we're going to see that we're going to really focus on three sections of it. Now, what I want to do today, though, is give a little bit of overview, number one, show you the structure, a little bit of the history. We'll spend a very little bit of a time. Number two, we're going to talk also about some of the main themes and questions that we should be thinking of when we look at this book, because it is a very different. And then three, we're going to jump into some of the text itself. Okay. So first, let's do a little bit of history and context. Now, as you recall, we've been going very uh, slowly, actually, through the Old Testament. It might feel like it's going very fast, but we're not. We're only five or six books in, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and we're finally at Judges. So we have just come through the period of the Exodus, Moses, the Israelites, the tabernacle, all tabernacle, all of that. And now we are at the section when Joshua had the reigns um, after Moses, and then now Joshua is going to die. So when Joshua dies, this is the next step, is this set of judges. Now, when you think of the name Judges, which is the name of the book, we think of someone who is with a gavel and tells you if you're right or wrong. If you go to a courtroom, and that is not the meaning. For Judges in the Old Testament means one of two or three things. First, it is usually some kind of deliverer. So somebody that's going to be a mini Messiah, someone, and not a big Messiah, but someone that's going to help save the people that the Lord is going to send to help save the people. So they're going to be a deliverer of sorts. They also tend to be some kind of ruler. So they might be a tribal chieftain. They might even be a group leader over them. In some ways, almost a king, something similar to that, not quite that big. 
And they might also be someone who has the gift of prophecy. They might have something that the Spirit has come on them, at least in some uh, fashion. So it's a book about people that are doing that. So when you think of judges, don't think of someone in a courtroom and somebody judiciary with robes and a gavel, but think of someone more like a tribal chieftain, a special person called of the Lord to help deliver his people, and but these people aren't that great most of the time. The book takes a, a very careful structure and it actually helps understand what the theme is. And the first is, there are only about um, 21 chapters. Chapter 1 and 2 are of our introduction. And chapter 1 and 2 is not in our reading, but you can go ahead and read it. We'll read a couple of verses. And chapter one, chapters 1 and 2 are going to set up what's going on. Joshua was dying, the people are in the land. But also, it's not just a historical book. It's not trying to tell us the blow-by-blow, blow, the video cam capture of everything that happened. It's trying to answer a question of how did we get here? What happened during these years? So that's chapters 1 through 2. We're going to set that up. We'll come back to that in a minute. The second chunk is actually where we're going to spend most of our time today, and that's somewhere around chapters 3 through about 16, and that is the story of the various deliverers, the various judges. Now, there are about six major judges, and then some minor judges, and a couple people tacked in there too, so it's a story that's going to be told over and over and over again, and you get a chance to spend some time with each of them. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going to spend our time. And again, we're going to look at three of them. We're going to look at, chronologically, Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Okay, so we'll look at those. And then you just have a few chapters at the end, 17 through 21. And I'm just going to give you a big caution before you go read those. They're very disturbing. And that's the point of those chapters, because the whole book of Judges, I think, is a cautionary tale that's telling us something where people really fail, and some really terrible things happen, and they do terrible things to each other. And the Lord keeps trying to save them, and rescue them, and love them despite that, but they continue to fail and sin, and really do terrible things. And so at the end, it's going to touch on a few of those. But I just want to be really cautious. The book of Judges, while it's in the Bible, is not for every age group. This You may not want to read some of these uh, to younger children. Please read them first. So... That's the first section I wanted to go through, the context, the story, the history, the layout. But it's the second point that I wanted to ask the question. If the story is about these people who aren't so great, and especially the people around them, again, the three that we're going to cover are some of the highlights. Samson's a pretty low light, but they are Deborah, did I say Miriam? Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. They are have some real highlights, but for the most part, uh, you're going to see this cycle of sin come up. And that's where we ask this question. Why does the Lord put this in scripture? If these are such disturbing stories and they're such stories of failure, why do we have them? So ask yourself that. Why does the Lord tell cautionary tales or tales of failure in scripture? What does he hope we get out of it? Perhaps you answered that question with perhaps to give us a signpost or ask us to pump the brakes, stop, whoa, wake up, this could happen to you. 
I think that's a really valid answer. The Lord puts these kinds of stories in because he wants to caution us in our day and age of what can also happen to us, that these are universal truths and we should watch for all of them. So I think a cautionary tale or tales of these kind of events are important because the Lord wants to warn us as well. Another idea of why does the Lord show these kind of terrible stories or people who aren't perfect Another answer you might have come up with is because we're not perfect either. And he wants to show how he works with imperfect people. And here's where I'm going to give you a little shameless plug for me. My book just came out. Hooray. Here it is. Real Heroes. I'm really proud of it. Thanks, Seed Fort, for going in on this and uh, trusting me with this. But I talk about uh, some of these heroes. We actually go through Gideon and Deborah in the book. But we talk about this very idea of people who are real. They make failings and sin and just don't do everything right all the time. And the Lord works with them anyway. And so to answer that question, why does the Lord put these stories? Because we're similar to those people. Maybe not as terrible as some of these. And maybe not as great as some of these. And yet we also fail. And we want to learn how the Lord works with people like that as well. So maybe that's why. Additionally, we want to learn more about covenants. I'm going to turn to one of the uh, verses in the first couple chapters here, and we're going to learn an interesting theme, again, right here in the outset. So in chapter, let's go to chapter 2 of Judges, and let's see. And I'm in verses, let's do... 12, 10 through 12. So chapter 2, 10 through 12. And here, I want you to just listen as we read through this. Again, not in your reading, so you're doing extra credit. But as we read through this together, I want you to ask your question, ask yourself the question, if you can see why the Lord is putting this in here. What are the messages, the big themes, the big takeaways that the Lord wants us to get in all of the book of Judges? Again, if chapters 1 and 2 are an overview, he, here the prophets have embedded this big idea. See if you can't find it while I read it. Again, Joshua 2, 10 through 12. And all the generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there that means they had all died. So this earlier generation had died. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods and the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. Did you catch maybe some of the things that had happened? In verse 10, the older generation, the Moses generation, and the Joshua generation, the people that had seen the Passover and the conquest of Canaan and all of these miracles that had happened in the wilderness, they passed away. And the next generation, what does it say about them? There arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They had forgotten. They had not learned about the Lord. They hadn't. They didn't have the scriptures with them. They weren't doing seminary and institute. They weren't doing uh, come follow me. And they weren't seeing those miracles in their own life. They didn't know him. It doesn't mean that they didn't just weren't aware of the stories. They didn't know 
they didn't really feel and have that testimony within them. So that's our first thing. How do we avoid some of the stories we're going to read about? We need to know the Lord and know his works in our own lives. Also, it said that they did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served other gods, right? It says Baal and Balaam. But they, the children of Israel, they forgot their covenants. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers. The one that after, even after the Lord had brought them out of Egypt and done all these miracles, you think, how could we forget? How could we forget? Do you ever think that in your own life? How do these guys forget this stuff? Oh, yeah. Who is this story really about? These stories, unfortunately, are a lot of our own personal stories. Sometimes us personally, in some manner or another, and sometimes just our own uh, families and communities. We look and we say, yeah, I've done that too. I might look down on the children of Israel, but yeah, if I really think about it, I maybe have been a little bit like this in my own life. I have forgotten. I, all those miracles I had in my life, all those witnesses that I'd had, the times when I'd felt the Spirit and understood the Spirit in my life, and then I'd forgotten, this is what was happening to them too. So when we ask ourselves, why does the Lord put this kind of story in here? What's the theme? How the Lord's going to work with us and how we can avoid this in our own lives. So they they turned to other gods. They forgot. They started. They forgot to do come follow me. They forgot to go to church. They weren't um, partaking in the sacrament. They weren't serving others. That's what happened to them. And so they the Lord's going to keep trying because He's going to keep His covenant with them for a long time. But they really fail. And so that's the theme. So again, it's an odd story. And as you read these, you'll notice that some of them are adventurous and exciting, but they're typically very violent. They're very bloody, and in some cases, they're really terrible. So just another caution, right? (laughs) You're not like, hey, grandkids, let's read these stories together. Maybe not. Okay. So that's some of the themes that we're going to see there. Now, I also want to go to those last few chapters. And again, I'm not going to read some of the terrible things that happened there. But I want you to go to the very, very last chapter of the book of Judges. Let's go there now. And we're going to see this theme. And this theme is actually quoted in the book of Judges four different times. Word word. So it's the very last. So it starts in about, it says it in chapter 17, but then at the very last of uh, chapter 21, we're going to get this theme. So I'm going there now. It is in Judges 21, 25. And remember, uh, listen again, we're still talking about the second bullet point that I wanted to cover, kind of the themes and the big ideas and the theological concepts that really are going to be the themes for the whole book before we jump into the detail. And This is the other theme. If we've already seen that the people forgot the Lord and they started to uh, worship others, this is one of the other things of why some of these terrible things are going to happen to them. And it is in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his eyes. That exact phrase is quoted four times in the last few chapters, last four chapters, in fact. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Two big ideas. They didn't have a king. Now, they're going to get a king, and and so we think this was written probably in a time when they had a king, because who would say that otherwise? But I think there's an important point here on a couple of levels. What was one of the important ingredients that the people were missing? They didn't have a strong leader. And who is the king that will come and really lead them? 
You might have said David or Saul or Solomon. But who is the great king that will lead all of us? The Lord, Jesus Christ, is our true king. And so we look to him to give us the leadership that we really need in our lives. And so one of the things they are missing is that leadership of the Lord, the true king, to say to lead them. Now, this is where you might say in the Book of Mormon, right, it says they shouldn't have a king because it tends to be corrupt and all the taxes and all those things that the kings do, and they should have judges. But the true king, a true king, like a King Benjamin, is the Lord. And these people were missing that strong humble, meek, powerful, righteous leader of Jesus Christ. So we look forward to the Lord in the scripture to say that's what we need in our lives. Did you catch the second part of that verse? The second thing that the people were missing that caused some of these problems? Every man did right what was in his own eyes. Is there a phrase that we use today that sounds an awful lot? I think the you do you, (laughs) that we just do whatever we think is right that we have a relative moral relativism that the morality that we follow is whatever we think is right rather than what's eternally correct and that just leads to a downfall and that sure sounds a little bit familiar to our society today we don't look to our heavenly king for guidance and right and wrong we follow our own morality and we don't do a very good job so the author, we don't know the author of this book. Some believe it is the prophet Samuel, but we get that from some other Jewish books, but we don't know that for sure. It never says in the book itself, but it does sound like it's written later. So they're saying, hey, if we looked back on this uh, three, it's about 300 years of history from about 1400 BC to about 1100 BC maybe 1090, something like that. By the time we get to Samuel and David and those guys, what we're coming up to, this golden age, those about that 300 years, it doesn't go very well. So they're like, why didn't it go very well? After we finally got here to, to the, Canaanite, the Canaanite lands, how come things fell apart so quickly? And it's like, let's look back and see how they did. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. Why did we fail? Why did these terrible things happen to us? And yet the Lord continues to work with them and bring people to help them, the judges themselves. Okay. All right. So that's items one and two. What are the themes? What are the big items? The background context, number one. And then number two, I'm sorry, I did that backwards. The context, the detail, uh, the setting, part one. And then we just touched on briefly some of the big themes and ideas and how this is structured to give us this lead in uh, to the book. Okay. All right. Again, caution when you let's jump over to chapter three and learn about our first judge. Now, again, there are going to be seven major judges, six or seven, and it depends on how you count them. But there are a bunch of them, and you've probably heard of some of them. So it's going to start out with uh, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah are the first three. And they're, they're, the stories are stories that like they're gory and they're exciting and bloody and they're stabbing and death and stuff. So just be aware when you're reading these, but we're going to skip to the story of Deborah and it's not any less gory, but anyway, the story of Deborah, we pick up in about chapter four, but in chapter three of Deborah in our reading, I'm sorry, in Judges chapter three, let me go there. This is where we're going to pick up the stories here. So we've already, I've told you a little bit about the first two chapters that are going to lay it out. And the first part of chapter three is still an introduction. And then after about verse six or seven, we start to get into the detail, all these judges. Now, one other thing I want to tell you about the judges, 
none of them are perfect. These, in fact, they're going to show the same story of what we call the sin cycle. You might be familiar with either the Deuteronomical Deuteron cycle or the, the pride cycle. It's similar to the pride cycle. It's the sin cycle. So the people are blessed, and then they look around at the Canaanites, who are very morally depraved. They... Um, have child sacrifice, they worship other gods, they uh, have a very uh, loose morality, a very terrible morality, and the Lord's told them, don't be like them. I know it's easy to think that the people that were living there, you'd say, they, they were just living their own lives and doing their own thing, but the Lord's told them, look, these Canaanites are pretty morally corrupt, I don't want you to be like them. And yet the children of Israel look around, they're like, hey, we want to be like them. And so they start to see those things and they start to participate in those same practices. So they start to participate in more of a loose moral behavior, whether that's a sexual morality or other kind of idolatry and other things that are pretty terrible. And they start doing that. And so then the Lord, they start to fall into a sin and destruction the Lord calls a deliverer, a judge. In this dark time, there's usually a war, a deliverance. Peace resides again. They come back up on the cycle. And then the people look around again and say, hey, that's pretty great. And the cycle continues. I'm going to sneeze. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going to see this cycle with these judges over and over again. So even though you're reading these and you're like, hey, I thought these were going to be great guys, they have high point moments and some are better than others, like Deborah's pretty great, but they struggle or there's some failing going on in the story, and especially in the story of Samson, so we'll come back to that. But in, excuse me, in chapter three, we're going to meet, we're going to see this cycle be repeated over and over. So in chapter three of Judges, verse seven and the first part of eight, you're going to see this pattern of words repeat almost verbatim every time. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Okay. And then they'll tell a little bit about what was going on. And then verse nine, and when the children of Israel cried until the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them. And then the story will continue. And there's one other key part. So the children did evil. They forgot the Lord. They started serving other gods. Then the, ch the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. And the, what does the Lord do? He keeps his covenant faithfulness. Even when the people were sinning and forgetting, he loved them. And so then he would raise up a deliverer. That's Remember, that's another name for the judge. So he raised up a judge to help them. And then there's this last key part. And this is in chapter, uh, verse 10. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, speaking of the deliverer. And he judged Israel and went out to war. So it'll say something about the spirit of the Lord. So it's going to be one of these common themes. While the spirit of the Lord comes upon all of these judges, the deliverer, it doesn't mean that it's blessing every single thing they do. They do some pretty terrible things. I know I keep saying that, but it was surprising the first time I really understood the book of Judges that these guys aren't great. Samson's one of the worst of all, and I know we read it like a children's story, but Samson's terrible. So... I want to show that to you because, again, it's this cautionary tale. It's reminding us to stop. Don't follow this pattern. Don't just forget the Lord. We need to know the Lord, and yet he will continue to love us. He will listen to our cries. He will send the Spirit and help someone deliver. 
who does that also, if that's not a, if that's a pattern in this story where it's simple patterns after these judges, can you think of another big picture pattern in which the people needed deliverance, they cried out to the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone, a deliverer, and he came and he rescued the people? The Savior Jesus Christ. So we see the pattern of the judges, the people crying out for deliverance and salvation, and the Spirit comes upon the Savior, uh, saves us all. So you see a pattern here uh, as well, so testifying of the Savior. Okay, so that pattern is going to go on. We read in this one, it's Othniel, and then we're going to do Ehud, and then we're going to jump over to the story of Deborah. So I'm going to go to chapter 4 and just jump right to Deborah. Okay, so, excuse me. In chapter 4, we're going to start with that same thing. The children of Israel did, once again, evil in the sight of the Lord. And then they cried out to the Lord. So as you go through, get a highlighter or uh, mark your electronic scriptures and see if you don't see those patterns. So you're going to see the children forgot, they cried out, and then you'll see perhaps that spirit being coming down the Lord, remembering and blessing them. And that's what happens here. So they uh, struggle again, and then we are introduced to Deborah. In verse 4, chapter 4, it says, then And Deborah... A prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time, and she dwelt under a palm tree, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we're like, wow, this is awesome. We're meeting one of our first deliverers in the story, and it's a woman, so that's pretty cool. And it calls her something unique. It calls her a prophet. There are a number of women called prophetesses in the Old Testament, somewhere between five and seven, depending on how you look at it. Uh, some are named, a couple of them are not named, but here's one of our first ones that are named. We also met Miriam as being called a prophetess. So she has the spirit of the Lord come upon her and she's able to give judgment. Now, a prophet is not just somebody who tells the future. In fact, Most often, the role of a prophet is not to tell the future, but if you think about it, what is most often do you hear the prophet, even the prophets today, tell us what is their main role? To tell us the will of the Lord. So they're going to teach us. So we hear uh, from them about our covenants, and we hear what the Lord wants us to hear in our day. And in this case, that's exactly what Deborah's doing. She is uh, giving judgments. People come to her to find out what's right and wrong in a situation. So she is judging the literally judging and helping people that way. She is called the wife of Lapidoth. That may be either a place, uh, it's also called the torches. And I love that if maybe it's not just a place she's from, but she's a woman of torches, which is an idea that she's a fiery personality. And we certainly see that. Deborah, the meaning of the name Deborah is completely clear, but D, B, and R, the root Debur. Debar means to speak and say something. And we see that same root in the beginning of the book of Genesis when the Lord spoke and said, let there be light. Or the Lord said, let the whatever happen during the seven creative periods. It's that same verb. So the idea of speaking and giving creation and power is in that word. And it's also the same root for honeybee as Deborah and so the idea of a honeybee now you might say what does creation and a honeybee have to do with each other but they're very linked in the idea 
of creation and abundance, a land cultivating a land and growing life. So Deborah the honeybee is what we think her name means, and that's the idea she's life and blessing and abundance. So that's tied in. So uh, when you find the name of, especially in the Old Testament, find the name, a lot of times it's giving us a clue to their personality or something about them. And so here's this woman who's called a prophetess, who is also someone who's about life, creation, and salvation. And we're going to see, indeed, she's going to be a deliverer of her people. So she uh, sits under this palm tree. Everyone knew who she was. And and then we, we get introduced to the story. So she sent and she called Barak or Barak, the son of Abinoam out of Kadesh Naphtali and said unto him, hath not the Lord of Israel commanded saying, go and draw toward Mount Tabor and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. So he says, Hey, Barak, um, didn't the Lord tell you to go gather a bunch of army guys and go some from Naphtali and some from Debulin? Remember, these are the different tribes. And we just learned where they all camped out and lived in Canaan. And he says, um, go there. And we get this instruction and says, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera. So to this river, I'm going to bring Sisera, who's the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots and with his multitude, and I will deliver him unto thine hand. So they're being oppressed by this uh, neighboring army. And when they say chariots, think tanks, like they are the military force. Deborah, this deliverer, this prophetess, calls Barak, we just introduced to him, and says, hey, didn't the Lord tell you to go gather 10,000 men from each of these tribes and, and then go against this Sisera? The captain of Jabin's army, even though he has a multitude, a bunch of army guys, and he has tanks, weren't you supposed to go do that? And you're like, okay, this is the setting. I'm getting the story. Deborah's this prophetess, and she's calling this guy, saying, weren't you supposed to go to war against this evil warlord? And this is, what is Barak going to say? And in verse 8, here's Barak. And Barak said unto her, doesn't say, if thou will go with me, then I'll go. But if thou will not go with me, I will not go. And and so we're like, wait, that doesn't sound very heroic of Brock or Barak. He's, I'm not going unless you can come. And our first thing should be, he was called and he's scared. Uh, he doesn't want to go against this guy with tanks and armies. Uh, so he's like, I guess if you go with me. And what are we supposed to read into that? The next verse tells us what we're supposed to think about that, which is not super great. And so in verse 9, she says, and she said, Deborah said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be that for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So he said, I'll go with you. But the honor and the glory won't be yours, but a woman so you're thinking, oh, Deborah. Somehow Deborah is going to win this battle. So we're seeing that the Lord is going to raise when the people cried out and they needed help from this army. The general or the captain is called Sisera. And yet Deborah prophesies that says, hey, Barak, if you don't go to do this by yourself, um, then you won't get the glory. This isn't going <laughs> to, we'll win, but okay. So you're like, oh, and these aren't, they aren't sounding, Barak isn't sounding very cool. He's sounding a little scared. And uh, maybe this is going to be Deborah. But they go and they do it. So they call the men from Zebulun and they call the men from Naphtali to Kadesh. It's a valley. And then they go with 10,000 men and they go up there. And we hear the story. So they go there and and they battle, right? So they Cicero's on one side 
and Barak and his army and Deborah. And it doesn't really say if Deborah's like in the battle, but she's there with them. And Sister gathers all his chariots and they get like tons of them. And then they off they go. And so then Deborah says, this is verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? The Lord is there. We know that the Lord loves these people and he is there to protect them during this invasion. So uh, Barak goes down Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men and off they go. And then it said, the Lord discomfited Sisera. Now in chapter five, this story is going to be told again as part of a song or a poem. And so we're going to see there's a flood that comes through, which reminds us a little bit of the um, crossing of the sea with the Israelites. So you're like, okay, the Lord does this miracle. is going to wipe out these chariots. And so then Sisera is going to flee. So this evil general Sisera flees. Barak uh, doesn't get him. So we're like, wait, I thought that, that this Sisera was going to be delivered by a hand of a woman. And he goes to a neighboring group. He's fleeing south. And he comes up across a woman named Jael or Yael. And she is not an Israelite, but she's a friend. And Sisera's, I'm exhausted. Let me hide in your tent. I am this general. I'm being chased down. And so Sisera, she feeds him some milk. And he goes into the tent. And after this long battle and this chase, he's exhausted. And the milk doesn't help. So he falls asleep. And then this is where the story, PG-13 story, she takes the tent stake from her tent and nails it through his head into the ground and kills Sisera. So Deborah's prophecy is correct. Now, I know I said prophecy isn't always about the future. Here's one of them. But said, hey, a woman will get the glory. And it isn't just Deborah, but Yael, Jael, gets it as well. Barak should have listened to the Lord, and instead the Lord blesses these women. So the first deliverer is not just Deborah and Barak, but Jael, this woman. There's no J in Hebrew, so it's Yael, but whatever. So that's the story. Now, just a tip here on what's going on in chapter 5. If you read chapter 5 of Judges again, it's a poem. And so they tell the story again, you get a few more details. We think this is actually one of the oldest actual writings in the Old Testament is this poem of Deborah and Jael is this Judges chapter five. So if you want to see some of the oldest writings, it's this story. And again, probably written somewhere around 1100 BC, somewhere there. So pretty cool. But poems, the use of poems and poetry are when things are really emotional or there's heightened meaning. And so this was a powerful and spiritual event. And so it's captured in this, this poem or a song. So that's cool. So in chapter four, you're going to hear the story, which we mostly just read. And then here in chapter five, pretty cool. All right. So we see that same sin cycle is going to be answered, and we also see that the people aren't perfect. Now, in this story, Deborah is pretty great, and Barak isn't terrible, right? He's, he's a little bit scared. But we're going to see that the Lord raises up a deliverer, Deborah, but they're not perfect people. And so while they're some of the better ones, we're going to find they get worse from here. Yeah. And so we're going to go to our next story. We're going to see the same pattern of this uh, sin cycle and the deliverer being raised up and then usually they fall back into problems before the chapter's over and that's what's going to happen here all right so that's your first judge all right in the next one we're going to do the story of gideon now uh, gideon means weird since we're going through names gideon means hacker like someone who's like a tree chopper. And this story is a really great condensed story of a man who is afraid. And we learn how the Lord works with him. Now, 
I like to tell the story of Gideon because it's a really great story of how when we're afraid and we don't understand, the Lord will work with us. But the ending of the story is a little bit tougher because he becomes pretty he bad. He has a bad end. But, but we see a lot of lessons in this that remind us of our own lives. So as you go through the story of Gideon, what's great is that I think we're used to seeing these super heroic people. And Gideon's one that's just a normal guy. And he has normal doubts and fears. And the Lord works with him anyway. So Gideon, the hacker, the tree chopper guy. So in verse 6, we're going to repeat that same pattern. So let's read it. Chapter 6, verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And then let's, let me read this little section about through verse 6. So that was verse 1, but I'm going to read through verse 6. So chapter 6, verses uh, 2 through 6. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and that Malachites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and they destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no substance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle in their tents, and they came up as grasshoppers for a for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. Verse 6, And Israel was greatly impoverished, because the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. So this is the part of the story where it's the big picture. So what's great about the way that ancient Hebrew works is that they're going to tell a big picture story and then we're going to zoom in and it almost is like it flips a coin. So I and I think I've used this example before, but it's like when you're watching Star Wars and you get that letter crawl, it's the Empire, blah, 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 and then it goes click and it goes right into the story of there's Luke Skywalker and you're like, oh, so this story, this big picture is going to be repeated in detail in a minute with the story of Gideon. So in the beginning, we've learned a couple of things. The children of Israel did evil, and so the Midianites overtook them. Now, remember in the Abrahamic covenant, the, the people are promised land and increase and prosperity, right, in the priesthood, and yet here we see they're losing it. Why? Because they're not keeping their covenants. So the Lord's do the people do evil in the Lord's sight, and they lose the land. And it says they're hiding in the caves and the strongholds. They're hiding from these the Midianites, their neighbors. And so they're being attacked, and they're hiding. And then it even says they came like grasshoppers. Right? They were just covering these evil. Uh, the armies were just covering the nations. So as you can almost imagine, it was a scary time. The people are hiding in caves and rocks in the hills, and the other armies are coming like grasshoppers, just completely encasing the area. And they're they've just lost everything. They just have no increase. They don't whether it's people, they don't have any children. Their, their children are threatened by all of this. They don't have any food. They don't have any abundance. So the the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant aren't offered to them because they're not keeping their covenants. And so we see those exact things here. Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and. They cried unto the Lord. And so the Lord sent a prophet, verse 8, And the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and brought you forth out of bondage, verse 9, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land, verse 10, And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God, fear not, 
the gods of the Amorites, and whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Okay, so we're getting, we set up the thing, the, the, the pro, a prophet, we don't know who it is. Hey, this is why it's happening. This is where we want to pause for a second, and we want to ask ourselves, how is this like our own lives? Is this happening? Can we see this anywhere in our own society, in our own family, perhaps in our own hearts? Are we forgetting our own covenants? Does the Lord love us? And yet we're not allowing him to bless us. And the prophet comes and says, maybe you could do a little better. Maybe. So that's where we're uh, going. Now, now we meet the story of Gideon. And that's where we get to verse 11. And that's where we're going to zoom in. So we've set the big picture. We're remembering these themes. And then we zoom in. Verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord. And he sat under the oak, which was at Orpha, and pertained unto Joash. You know, that guy. And the son of Gideon and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So when we set this story, it might not jump out at us, but this angel of the Lord's coming, he's sitting under an oak tree. We saw that a lot in the story of Abraham. That was a place where uh, heaven and earth meet. So it's almost a little mini temple. So we're like, ooh, something spiritual is going to happen. It's reminding us, a hyperlink. And then we meet, oh, I, I missed a part, but he pertained to Joash, the uh, Abers, some guy. Joash and his son Gideon. But Gideon is doing some agricultural work. And he is threshing wheat in a wine press. And that might not jump out to us because if you're like me, I don't work in agriculture. But a wine press is a, a usually round, depressed uh, area, sometimes with bricks or sometimes just dug out. And then it, so it's a little depression in the ground. And there you put the grapes in and then you stomp on them and there'd be the drainage where the grape juice would come out. But he's not making grape juice. He's not making wine. He's threshing wheat. And so when you thresh wheat, you're the head of the grain and the stalk of the grain. You're, you beat it, and then the head of the grain comes off, and then comes the chaff and the grain. And then you scoop up that stuff, and you throw it into the air. You wouldn't do it with your hands, but like a pitchfork or whatever. And you throw it, and it weighs different amounts. And so the chaff, the the weedy stick part, blows a certain way, and then the grain um, blows a certain way and then you can gather it up. So it's how you separate the grain part of wheat from the chaff. And so the chaff is the throwaway part. And so he's doing that. The setting is, and here we meet our hero hiding in a wine press and working on his wheat so that, that these evil Midianites don't get him. So he's scared. It's a scary time. So it's a really funny introduction to a guy that you're like, is he brave or is he scared or is it really that scary? And that's the first time we meet Gideon as doing this wheat harvest in a little hole in the ground. And the angel of the Lord appears to him, I'm in verse 12, and says unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. I love this part because from what we can see, he's not a mighty man of valor. This is an aspirational title or maybe... Lord knows something about Gideon that Gideon doesn't know yet about himself. Gideon is going to be very fearful throughout the story, ask for a lot of reassurances, and not quite follow the instructions to the letter of the law because of his fear. And yet here, this angel of the Lord calls him mighty man of valor. Sometimes the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. Additionally, with the Lord, I think 
we can become that great thing. And here, Gideon can become a great, mighty man of valor. So we meet our next hero, our next deliverer, hiding, and this angel comes and tells him. Now, I don't want to go through exactly the whole story blow by blow, but I do want to cover this next part a little bit. In verse 13, I I, I want you to listen for what Gideon is going to ask this angel. This is an angel of the Lord. And this is what Gideon's going to say to that. Verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, My Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us unto the hands of the Midianites. Have we ever sometimes felt that way? That other people, other times, have had really great miracles in their lives? But we say, if the Lord is with us, why are all these terrible things happening? Maybe you've had financial woes. Maybe you've had health problems. Maybe you've had problems with your kids or school or whatever it is. And you've maybe out loud or maybe secretly in your heart been a little bit like Gideon. And said, the Lord's with you and all these blessings. And you're like, really? If the Lord was with us and we delivered us out of Israel, how come I'm hiding in a wine press? And how come all these armies are upon us? Do we ever ask that question? I think for some of us, that's probably a question we, similar question we've asked. Where's the Lord during my trials? And so the story of Gideon might be one for you, if that's something that you have asked yourself. Because the Lord's going to answer that he's with him all along. Maybe a little differently than he thought. But for Gideon... He'd heard these stories and he'd grown up on these stories and yet he wasn't seeing all these miracles. He's seeing the opposite. So he doesn't understand how the Lord works. So just something to think about is how much are we like Gideon? All right. So Gideon asked that question and it says the angel of the Lord, but they're going to call him the Lord here. The Lord looked upon him and said, go in this thy might and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? So He's kind of looked at him and says, I'm going to give you this strength and you shall save, you shall save Israel from these evil people, right? From the Midianites. Isn't, am I not the Lord? Am I not the one sending you? So some things to ponder when we're asked to do something the Lord is asking us to do. You're like, hey, I'm asking you to do it. I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. I'm going to do it with you, but I'm asking you to do it. And, and then I love this part. Gideon just has this great conversation. Verse 15 is, I'm going to have you do it. And Gideon says, And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's like, how am I supposed to do it? How am I supposed to be this deliverer? Not only am I in one of the small, in a small house, my family is the smallest in the tribe and I'm the smallest in my family. Like you have picked the weakest of the people. You've picked the lowest of the low, the smallest of the small. How am I supposed to do it? Have you ever been asked to do something in your life where you're like, how am I supposed to accomplish that? I'm nobody. I don't have those skills. I'm not as talented as sister. I don't have the uh, musical skills as brother somebody. I don't have the missionary work. I haven't been in the church as long. I don't know the scriptures like that, or I don't know. 
I'm just little. How am I supposed to do it? And the Lord answers him and says, Surely I will be with thee. And that's the answer that we're going to find over and over again. Even when the Lord asks us to do difficult things, just like Gideon, the Lord's going to say, Even though you're small, I am with thee. Great message. The book of Judges has some great messages, but it goes downhill. Okay, so he uh, tells him that. We're going to see a bunch of these signs with this fleece. He's, Gideon's just, this is scary. I'm going to get killed. And so he asks for a lot of reassurances. And uh, then he first has to go and uh, destroy a an altar of Baal. And he doesn't go during the day. He gathers up some friends and he goes at night. And then he, uh, then he has to keep escalating these things till he eventually is called to just go against the people themselves and he gathers a big army. So he does get, he gets a little braver. He gets a little more practice and Gideon gathers a great big army. And then the Lord's like, nah, that army's too big. <laughs> we don't, no, I want them to know that it's me, the Lord. So get rid of some of them. So any of them are afraid they can go. So Gideon follows the Lord's instructions. Hey, too big. If anybody's afraid they can go. And a big bunch of them go. So now they're just down to this small group. And then the Lord's still, uh-uh, Gideon, too many guys. Too many guys. So they go to this, you've probably heard this part of the story, they go to the river and they're like, see who drinks the water. And some drink by putting their hands up, like scooping it, and some just put their faces down in the water. And it's whoever does it this one way, so they can go. And they're, uh, go away and everyone else is going to stay in the army. So after that little test, there are only 300 guys left. So the Lord's like, that's how we're going to defeat the uh, the Midianites. And so he tells them, this is how we're going to do it. <laughs> I want you to get torches. Every guy's going to get a torch and a pot, like a clay pot. And uh, they're going to put the torches. It's night. They're going to do a night battle. And you don't fight at night. You can't see anything. They don't have night vision goggles. It's a terrible uh, plan. Even anciently, I don't know how this is supposed to work. So it's a big army. And you're going to go attack them at night with torches and you put the torches in the pot so you can't see the light. And so they're going to, and they're each going to get a horn. So the Lord gives them these instructions, these 300 guys. So they get there and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. When you get there, you're going to, it's middle of the night. The other guys are sleeping. You're going to get the horn out. In fact, I have one. If I have one. Somewhere. So this is, this is one of the horns. I can't blow it. It wouldn't have been very good if I had blown the horn. But you take the horn, and you blow the horn at night, it's night, and you take your torch, and you yell, and you blow the horn. You take it out of the pot, so now it's bright, but in there it was dark, right? And so you uh, turn it on, and you scream, and you yell, and you run into the, the army, the opposing army. And so as they do that, it freaks out the guys, and they all fight each other and run away. They win this great big battle that the Lord had told them about. I with When I'm with you, I'm going to deliver... Uh, the Midianites into your hand with this really fantastical way. And Mid Gideon, this mighty man of valor who is scared un- and doubtful, learns that the Lord's with him and becomes powerful. And moves. there's more to that story. So I encourage you to, you know, get the book or uh, jump into the story and see if you don't see more of what's happening with the story of Gideon. Okay, let's move on to our last Samson. Okay, so Samson's our last. Now, 
we've gone on quite a while. So what I'd like you to do with the story of Samson is take some of the ideas that we've already covered, namely the pattern that we see where the people are following that sin cycle. They forget the Lord. They don't obey their covenants. They're starting to see what's around them with the people, the Canaanites. In the story of the of Samson, it's the Philistines, but it's the neighbors. And so they're looking around and they're seeing the lifestyle and the moral depravity and they start to follow that. And then we're going to see that the people are going to cry out and the Lord is going, his spirit is going to come upon Samson in this case many times, as well as Samson's mother. And she's going to conceive a miracle baby. And then he's going to be this hero. Now, Samson in some ways is an anti-hero. So you're going to see where Samson's mother and father have not had a child they pray and an angel comes and says that they're going to raise a deliverer and it's going to be their miracle baby. And so we're going to see this pattern again of a, a couple who cannot conceive only by the spirit of the Lord. Are they blessed with a child? Now, <coughs> it is of a mother and father, but we're going to see this miracle being required to help them be blessed. And then the spirit of the Lord comes upon the father and mother so that they can conceive and then they have Samson. But they're told that they have to raise him as what's called a Nazarite. A Nazarite is usually a set of special vows that Israelite can take for a short period of time. But in this case, he's going, because of his special status dedicated to the Lord, Samson, whose name means sun, like the sunshine sun, then Samson is going to be a, a Nazarite from birth, like his whole life. Some of the things that we do when we become a Nazarite if are <coughs> the big famous one, Samson, is he doesn't cut his hair. And so he's not ever supposed to cut his hair. Now, again, for most people, it's only a period of time, like a month or two. But for this case, he's never supposed to cut his hair. One of the others is you should never be around a dead item because, again, the purity laws. And we're going to see where he finds a dead carcass and finds honey in it and then eats the honey and serves that. So he doesn't do very well with these laws. You can probably remember about him cutting his hair. He's not supposed to. We can also see that he's beyond the dead things and yet he does that. We're also supposed to be, there are a bunch of different rules. Another one is he shouldn't drink alcoholic beverages and he gets drunk. So, so you're like every single rule of being announced, Samson doesn't do. So Samson marries outside the covenant. Samson drinks alcohol. Samson kills things. Samson's around dead people. Samson cuts his hair. So Samson in some ways is uh, the Lord keeps blessing him despite his uh, unfaithfulness to his vows because the Lord loves the people and is going to make these things happen to bless the people. So Samson marries a Philistine and then is at a party, the wedding party, and then it, the Lord makes it uh, kind of bless the Israelites. So we see this theme of the Lord using, despite the, all these failings, the Lord using it anyway. And But I, to be honest, I always thought Samson was like this super heroic story, but when you read it as an adult, you're like, Samson's pretty terrible. So he's arrogant, he's rude, he doesn't keep his vows, and eventually he ends up right blinded and his hair grows. He's chained to these pillars and they're teasing him and mocking him and some pretty terrible things. And he pulls the uh, whole building down on the Philistine, the ruling family of the Philistines, which the Lord uses to bless the people, but he's ki killing a bunch of people. So Samson's a, a cautionary tale. Samson's a story that we should look at and say, 
the Lord is blessing the people despite this person not living up to his covenants. And while he's pretty terrible, sometimes that's us too, that the Lord blesses us despite that. So in chapters 13 through 16 of Judges, go back and read the chapters about Samson and see if you don't see the pattern we've talked about. The Lord blessing the people when they to him in this sin cycle. He raises a deliverer. They're saved. And then they look over the shoulder again and go, well, maybe we'll do that anyway. But how much the Lord still loves us. And the Lord can make us more when we turn to him. The story of Judges is a cautionary tale. It's one where the Lord loves his people. And yet when we turn away from we are not entitled to his protection and his blessings. And yet he will continue to love and deliver us as much as we ask. However, we should just avoid that and just stay true to our covenants. The story of Judges reminds us that the Lord does love us, and yet we could avoid all that pain uh, and remember the Lord and the blessings, know Him and see the blessings that He has offered in our lives. It reminds us to stop, to pause, to reflect and see, are we looking to the heavenly King that was promised to lead us and follow His guidance, or are we doing what is right in our own eyes? And that's the book of Judges. Now, I'm going to see you next time because we're going to pick up the story on Ruth and Samuel, which all takes place just almost chronologically. So remember what we learned? The people behind the stories in the Old Testament were not always the heroes we now see them to be. They were real people with real struggles. They were sinners, failures, and doubters. But they were also conduits for miracles and wonders. The heroes are the people who failed, struggled, and were imperfect, and yet had the strength to return to God. Wrapping together history, language, culture, and motifs, author Lori Denning brings light and deeper interpretation to the Old Testament stories we already know so well. With these powerful examinations of Abraham, Miriam, Gideon, Ruth, and more, you will come to know the real men and women behind the pages their mistakes, their failings, and their triumphs. Recognize the Lord in every story as He works to make these imperfect people better. Understand that we can also succeed in Christ, no matter our present doubts or imperfections. Just like the men and women whose stories are recorded in scripture, we, too, can become instruments in the Lord's hand and be heroes of our own lives. All it takes is putting our trust and our faith in God.